Recently, 20th Century Fox had two great ideas. To make a film called Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, and to get Russ Meyer to write, produce, and direct it. This is Russ Meyer, 240 pounds of creative energy. For years, he's been making very moving pictures for very little money. Yet there was something about his films, like The Moral Mr. T's and Vixen, that sparked the public's imagination. That something was Meyer's infallible eye for picking beautiful women. Look on up, look on up, at the bottom. Look on down, 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 with Russ Meyer supplying a dazzling selection of traveling companions and brand new stars. Dolly Reed as Kelly, the singer. Cynthia Myers as Casey, the swinger. Marsha McBroom as Pet, the soul sister. Edie Williams as Ashley, the superstar. Erica Gavin as Roxanne, the sensualist. And Phyllis Davis as Susan, the insider. A sweet talking old candy man. Beyond the Valley of the Dolls has all the elements drama, love, mystery, music. But the most important element is the guy who put it all together, Russ Meyer. This is not a sequel, there has never been anything like it. Hello, and welcome to Stuff We've Seen. Howdy, listener. This is your host, James Kent, and with me is my guest, Bill from Queens, or I should say, noted film director, Bill Muir. Oh, sure. Noted, Absolutely. Noted <laughs> film director. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yes. A- and it footnoted. <laughs> I can't say noted film director. I didn't direct any movies, but you yeah, did. Yeah, footnoted film director. Which, so, is, by the way, I, I'm going to say this for the listening audiences, a little shout out, a little plug to a listener from New Jersey, Joanna. We talked about her on the show. Good friend from the past. I was introduced to Joanna from our friend, the noted film director, Bill Muir. Nice. And so she's been listening along. She had a few few bones, bones to pick with us on right. our Meryl Streep uh, episode. She wasn't so happy that two men were, were spending so much time commenting on the performance of females without perhaps the female perspective. And I, 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 I can't fault her for that. I can't either. I can't disagree there. But she also had, <laughs> had a request. She's like, I, I want to see that movie that Bill directed. And I'm like, don't we all get in line? Uh, she's like, maybe, maybe he has a copy he could he could lend me. I'm like, yeah. By the time that you get that copy, you know, there's a there's a 35 millimeter print at the Irish Film and Television Archives. There you go. Yeah, I mean, obviously, <laughs> Bill. I don't know why you're so shy. Um, you should honestly, you should get in touch with your contacts and get them to bring that uh, 35 millimeter print out of hawk and digitize that mother and uh, get a streaming uh, thing going with like Amazon. Amazon Prime or something. I mean, they always got some weird stuff going on. I, I'd like to see the Bill Muir uh, movie experience one day. You know, I got to clean the gutters this weekend, Jimmy. Jimmy, yeah, moving on. Oh, oh, look, a baby wolf. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, uh, I love you. Whenever we get in a jam or a scrape, you always are coming up with uh, something like that. You were always like, you you like draw an invisible square in the air, and you go window. <laughs> I'm getting out of here, Jimmy. <laughs> You're on your own. Oh dear. Okay. Uh, what are we doing today? What do we What do we got going on? What do we got What are we gonna talk about? Couple Couple things. I mean, there there was a, a story that. Um, uh, I had remembered you telling from the past, and it, I, what made me think about this was when you were talking about um, a couple of episodes again, when you when you very graciously had me on, and uh, you were talking about uh, when you fumbled that opportunity with the girl throwing <laughs> now, her. Yes, so now it's completely my fault. I can't blame you. Can't blame the cop on Ninth Avenue. I can like, blame myself. <laughs> The girl who uh, who threw her hair in your lap. And, I know. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, mixed signals. Um, <laughs> so what happened was uh, I was thinking about uh, going to the movies and going to the theater when you're young can be sort of sexually charged, you know, especially going on a date. And, you know, Pauline Kael, if you look at like a lot of her collections, uh, writing the movies, they're always, she always said that there was a kind of a sexually charged title, like Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. <laughs> deeper into the movies, uh, think, things like that, movie love. And and she said that's, you know, she very deliberately always did that with her titles because she always associated uh, sex in the movies. And one thing that I was thinking about is... No, all right, so, th- so I'm going to cut you because I want to teach you a lesson about storytelling. Yeah. You don't give away the punchline of the story right there in the thing. So now I'm going to have to edit that because now everybody's going to know what the story's about, you fool. All right, fine. Fine, 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 fine. So let's, so where are we going to cut it from? I don't know. I'm going to, uh, uh, for you, the listener, uh, Bill in his, his poor setup of a story uh, gave away the punchline of the story. So I have now had to cleverly edit that out. Uh, I'm going to use this opportunity because he was talking about Pauline Kale. Just mention a little segue here is have you, because you have Netflix, right? Me, yes. Yeah. No, no, no. Somebody else that I can't, that I can't answer me. Yes. You, yeah, Bill. Yeah, yeah, me. Yes, yes. You noted film director, Bill. Thank Miller. you. Thank you. <laughs> Have you caught the sort of weird uh, semi-finished Orson Welles movie? F for fake. F is for fake. No, no. No, not F for fake. The, the, the one that was in oh, the vault. that written they, on the wind yes, or whatever. You, the thing. Have you yes, seen it? Yes. I, I've seen bits and pieces of it. And um, I got to be honest, I just, um, I was not really drawn into it. I just didn't have the time. It's a, it's a weird curiosity for sure. Uh, I watched the whole thing uh, about a year ago or so, or maybe it was two years ago. I don't know. Whenever it first showed up on Netflix, right. uh, I was waiting for Teal to watch it. He didn't. <laughs> so we never talked about it, but it is a weird curiosity, total failure. I mean, I can see why it sat in a vault for so long because it really isn't a, a, a complete movie. Uh, the bits I saw, it was a mess. Yeah, it was a whole lot, bunch of ideas. And it was one of those things, again, that these directors who were given money because they were so genius, they could kind of go on an idea and hopefully they could find a way to make something. I, I mean, I think it's an interesting thing that people would hand a filmmaker tons of money to go out and find your movie. Um, it, it doesn't always come out very successfully, but because it did a few times, like like we'll say with Easy Rider, right? Right. So they would just do this. But the reason why I mention it is there's a character in the movie that's based on Pauline Kael. Well, because, because she wrote um, the essay Raising Cain, 
where she kale was not a fan of the auteur theory right and um despite the fact that she has certain directors who could do no wrong in her mind De palma and altman i would say were the ones that she was absolutely crazy about but you know so basically her point about citizen kane in that essay was that you know it really isn't so much the work of wells you know, child genius. Right. Rather, it's a kind of, it's the product of a great collabor- collaboration with um, Greg Toland and Herman Mankiewicz. And that, you know, the script really is something that comes out of Mankiewicz. And it's sort of a culmination of all these talky newspaper films that he had done. And Greg Toland's photography and Orson Welles was able to put it together. But because of the whole cult of the director, he became, you know, associated as being the genius, the force behind yeah, it. She rejected the notion that Orson Welles was the most important piece of that project. Right. And he took it and he took it hard. Right. Oh, yeah. So he gets his revenge <laughs> where he puts somebody, a caricature of Pauline Kale in this movie. So anyways, now there's a story that uh, for whatever reasons <laughs> you felt that you'd like to hear again that uh, from my bag of movie tricks. And yes, yes, you were mentioning the movie experience. And of course, New York City, you throw that into the mix. And I think what it is, is that sometimes, especially in New York City back in the day, when you would go to the theater to see a film, you were never sure that when you came back from that movie, you just saw a film. You might have an experience at the theater. And and thus, right. you know, illustrated by when we went and saw Prospero's books. And I had mentioned with Teal in the past when we went and saw The Doors. And mm-hmm. uh, there's a couple other movies experiences that we haven't talked about. One that I had with you where uh, we went to see the John Woo film, The Killer. We're going to have to talk about that. So that's a whole show <laughs> in and of itself. Yeah, yeah. But, it, but that's an example of like where you go in think you're just going to go see a movie. The whole thing about The Killer was I lived across the street from this theater that opened up in the winter of 1991. It, it was the um, the East Street Cinema there. Mm-hmm. Well, on like the corner of 12th Street and 2nd or, or 14th Street, whatever it was. No, no, 12th Street. And I would walk by it all the time to go to class, etc. And there'd be these posters and there was this poster for The Killer. And it was really more of like a review about the phenomenon of these Hong Kong action films and that right. the critics were, they were like flocking down to the Hong Kong theaters to check out these movies. And somehow this one director's film made it a little bit uptown. And it just, I read it and I was like, man, this sounds good. But Teal at the time was just not available. Like we were roommates, but he was working on his cousin's film. It had right. started production. And I'm like, well, I really would like to see this film. And some films, you know, I'm fine with going to see by myself. And other films, I want to have somebody go to, you know, with me. And I'm like, well, who would like this, like, crazy, insane <laughs> shoot 'em up action movie? You got to have somebody that really, like, is fascinated with guns and stuff. Oh, I know. Uh, uh, there's that guy, Bill Muir, that uh, we're friends with. And now, now but the, the unique thing about this is that... While we would see you from time to time in that junior year when I was living with Teal, uh, we didn't hang out that often. I would come and stop by a little bit more regularly. I, I think I, I hung out with Teal a few times when when you were back in Massachusetts. Yeah, like yeah, right for Chris. But I mean, it was like, but it was like random appearances. You weren't a part of the the stock. Like you weren't there all the time. Like uh, that John Garofalo guy. Yes, right. Yes. You know, he was there like almost every night hanging out. But you you just showed up randomly. Um, but we had your number and I call you up and we go see that film. And 
I didn't really know what to expect. I knew nothing. And I don't think you really even knew anything about it either. I think Absolutely you knew, no clue. You knew no maybe clue. less than me. And I guess it was it was like we were awash in an experience that we were not prepared for. Yeah, you were you were a perfect hype man for it. And, and I remember how you were hyping it. You were like, oh, they're going to remake this and it's going to have Richard Gere and Danny Glover. Which I think I don't know about that. Um, maybe a cop on Ninth <laughs> Avenue told us that. But but uh, but anyways, that's not what we we're going to talk about. Even though that was like a, it was just a memory that I remember. I was so happy to have somebody with me to experience that. Jimmy, it was it was such a good experience. I got to say that was one of those things. There's there's a moment about five minutes into the movie where Chow Yun Fat kicks a table over in slow motion to grab a pistol and the entire audience like gasped and cheered during it. Yeah, it was an it was- audience of like 10 people, by the way. We, well, we, we ended up seeing it again. Like the next, uh, the next fall we went At to film form, the film form. See how this is That's getting ready to tie right. in, Bill. See how yeah, I tie okay. in a story. I take my time. I wait a few minutes and now you're going to see how film form comes in. It's brilliant. Um, okay. So, so that was probably when we had a big crowd However, we, the two of us, had never seen a ballet, a choreographed of violence in action, just in such a different way than you'd ever seen an American film. Yeah. And we were over the moon. We were shaking each other like, Jimmy, Billy, this is crazy. (laughs) And it really was one of my top film experiences of the decade. Absolutely. And, and ironically, there's like two of my top 10 experiences were with you, the Prosperous books and uh, <laughs> the killer. Now, go to the fall of 91, my senior year. I'm living in Little Italy and I'm living with my roommate, Sophia, and this other girl, Patty. And this is prior to you moving in the second semester. Right. Uh, we had become friends and we started hanging out and we would go out quite frequently, you know, hitting the movies or whatever. Mm-hmm. This was on a Saturday and an afternoon show. I went by myself to the film forum. And I don't even know if it was a, a situation where I went trying to find anybody to see the movie with me. It was just me personally wanting to go and see this. They were having a 25th anniversary screening new new uh, print from the original 35 millimeter negative of Antonioni's blow up right and and think about that now right i'm telling a story that's 29 years old and that's insane at the time it was the 25th anniversary of that film I, I, that just blows my mind right cuz blow up came out in 1966 it was one of my favorite films at the yes, time yes it's it's a real jimmy movie i would say and what's what's really interesting about that is the first time i saw blow up I taped it off a television screening or maybe it was on like late night or whatever, you know, with commercials, et cetera, taped it on the VCR, watched it the next day. And partly was because I used to go through my my Academy Award list and anybody that was nominated for Best Picture or Director, I had to see those films. And this was on the list. So I'm like, all right, I got to sit down and watch it. It must have been butchered on television. Um, No, I don't know if it was. I don't know if it was all that cut or whatever, but I was like. 
what the hell is this movie? This movie makes no sense. There's like mimes playing tennis. And then I, I just didn't get it. Right. I didn't understand what the point of this movie was. And I felt like, well, there's a mystery plot kind of buried in this film, but I don't get it. Right. You know, flash forward a couple of years later. I end up seeing the thing again, but it was like watching it for the very first time. Mm. I don't know whether I caught it uh, freshman year college at USC. They showed it and I was like, oh, my God, this movie is, is brilliant. But then I saw it like a series of times. And then, you know, for like a class exercise in one of my film classes, I did a comparison between blow up and the conversation, talked about similarities. And uh, I just was really digging this film. So I really wanted to see this like, you know, nice restoration, brand new print of the movie. So I go to Film Forum and Film Forum still exists. Uh, yes. I don't know if they, I don't know when, when was the last time you were ever at Film Forum? Uh, last year. Okay. So, I mean, have they improved the theaters at all? <laughs> like, has it been refurbished? <laughs> it's pretty much the same. It's kind of, you know, um, there's still kind of very tiny theaters um, with, uh, you know, just sort of these great seats for like retired teachers to kind of sit in and stuff like, well, yeah, like yeah. I mean, full of old people. <laughs> I, if I were my re recollection, and I know this is not the way it was, but remember when we talk about uh, the Angelica down the street where you have to go downstairs into these tunnels to go to mm -hmm. the movies and it's like you can hear the rumbling of the train, even though Film Forum isn't downstairs in a, in a dungeon or something, it feels like these cavern and these little caves where you go in they're not the greatest right uh, absolutely i i that's um i i think the last time i was there was to see uh some birdman films but uh yeah but these are essential venues because this is where you're going to get to see some of these classics of cinema or these odd duck art films or these nice little collections. And if you want that communal experience of the audience, this is where you go, right? Right. So there's Absolutely. a charm in that. Like this is an expectation that I'm not going to go see Blow Up at the Zigfield. They're not going to show that, right? <laughs> but I'm going to go to the film forum. And this might have been one of my first experiences with it. You know, it's kind of weird. Film forum, it was down off of Houston, right? Right. Yeah, well, I guess it still is. But And uh, like between 6th and uh, 7th Avenue. But you get kind of territorial uh, depending on where you live any given year at NYU because... I don't know, there's just some areas you don't get down to too often. So, like, whenever anything was playing at the Film Forum before, I wasn't living anywhere near there. So, it was like, oh, I'm going to have to trek down there. Because you don't take, like, when you're on a uh, student salary, <laughs> you're not taking cabs everywhere or trains. You're, no, you're, you're walking. You're, you're footing it. Yeah. So, I don't know if it was just that nothing ever appealed to me at Film Forum or whatever, but now I lived not too far away. So, I go to this thing on a Saturday afternoon by myself. And, you know, it's a sparse crowd. There's not so many people that are dying to see the 25th anniversary of uh, Blow Up. And I'm sitting in this uh, kind of the middle center of the audience, uh, the theater. And I don't know, maybe there's like maybe 10 people total. Okay. And then there's a couple that is seated directly in front of me. Like literally the row in front of me, there's a guy and his girlfriend. And I think that the girlfriend is right in front of me and the boyfriend is to the right of her, okay? About a row up from them, there's some guy by himself. I mean, it's mostly like people by themselves and a couple of couples, you know, in the theater. I'm by myself, you know, watching this film, really enjoying it because the print is immaculate. And the colors, everything is just so beautiful. I like, I'm kind of thinking this is like, this is my ultimate time viewing the film. 
right? I'm just like, this is perfect. This is exactly what I want. And and, and amazing soundtrack. And I'm sure. Oh, amazing know, soundtrack. Herbie Hancock. Um, and, you know, I'm not going to bore people with the details of Blow Up, but uh, it's a film <laughs> that you should see if you haven't seen it because it's just a classic. And I want to say that it's the scene where the two girls come over to his studio and they want to be photographed. One of them's Jane Birkin. Yes, very tasty. Yes, I like it. I like it. Go on. Yes, one of them is Jane Birkin, which uh, for for those who don't know who she is, Bill, do you want to... uh... Uh, She was the partner of uh, Serge Gainsbourg and the mother of Charlotte Gainsbourg, and she has a very pricey handbag named after her. (laughs) Correct. (laughs) Okay. So during that scene, again, this is the part I'm a little fuzzy on, the exact timing, but it was a very strange and noticeable thing that the guy by himself in the row two in front of me uh, so in front of this couple he gets up and he sits down directly next to the woman the girlfriend in front of me and I'm like I'm like looking at invisible partners of mine going can you what what is going on here that is really freaky when there's an empty empty theater and a guy gets up in the middle of the action and sits down right next to you and you're a woman it's just it's just just not right no you knew it wasn't i'm I'm telling you like right now can i just i'm gonna break in just in your story one second one time this is i went to go see the thin red line at the Ziegfeld. And this was back when they first when they first started having like assigned seating at the Ziegfeld. That early? Wow. Yeah, I so I sit down and all of a sudden who comes and and I'm with actually seeing it with somebody else and a guy comes in with another guy. It's Ethan Hawke and some dude <laughs> and and their seat was literally because they both had picked like the center center aisle. So it was like their seat was right next to ours. And we both looked at each other and he, he was just like, ah, you know what, I'm just gonna move over like one because <laughs> 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 you know, he says, if uh, you know, if I'm taking somebody else's seat, I'll move back That's over. <laughs> You know, here's an interesting thing. All right, now, of course, I have to go into this. We've segued. We have segued officially. No, is that Ethan Hawke went to NYU while we were at NYU. Okay, I know, But what I you know. may not know, you may not know this, Bill. For a very brief period of time, he dated, after we were out of college, he dated our old roommate, Sophia, for a short period of time. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Captain, my captain. But he he was not a uh, he was not a one gal man, <laughs> and so she kind of was like wasn't wasn't too keen on the arrangement. All right, so. can I? I'll, I'll I'll since we've segued, I'll tell you. So no wait wait okay wait, but you can't. But you're not going to tell the other. Okay. No 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 no. Okay. This is this. So this. No is no, no 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 no. <laughs> so in so he's sitting one seat over from us, and the the previews come on for uh coming attractions and um that's what usually previews are yeah thank you yes (laughs) (laughs) or previews for your soda yeah yeah, not last year's movies but uh (laughs) so there was a movie with sean connery and Catherine zeta jones a oh right 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 exactly yes you know what i'm talking i do know so so there's this shot in the trailer where Catherine zeta jones is like on all fours and has to like like slide underneath like some lasers while wearing like a Catwoman leather suit. Yes. And Ethan Hawke turns to his friend and goes, 
who the fuck is that? <laughs> hey, guess what? In the uh, and uh, Ethan Hawke is our next week's guest. <laughs> and his uh, and his friend goes, "It's the Zorro girl, man." <laughs> that is a great story. So back back to the Sorry, action. To the, the action. Okay, so this. So it's weird someone sitting next to somebody. No, no it's beyond weird. It is the weirdest thing that I've ever experienced in a movie theater. I'm talking weirder than a girl I don't know who throws her hair onto my lap. Okay? It is just I mean, I I'm having a hard time focusing on the movie because it's not that it's so weird that this creepy dude and he was creepy i can't remember exactly what he looked like it was dark but he was trench coat wearing creepy and like i'm i'm like watching the screen uneased but i'm also looking in front of me going why haven't this couple moved <laughs> like that's what it was they didn't know what to do like this is new york city you don't know it's so unpredictable wait what? is he being weird or am i being weird yeah, yeah. like well maybe there was something on the guy's seat and then you know in every seat in the theater so he had to sit next to us and it was a center seat you know you want to have the best spot so now, i don't want to be weird <laughs> yeah so okay so then so then it wasn't too long after that I thought at first it's the it's the audible sound I hear and it's not on the soundtrack of the movie. I hear this and I thought someone was in pain. I didn't know what was going on. I hear this. And then the girl turns. It was the guy. It was the it was the, it was the stranger making that noise. She goes, oh, my God. And then the, the boyfriend, he is like reaches over grabs the guy and like, get the fuck out of here. What are you doing? <laughs> the guy was masturbating to the movie next to this poor girl and her oh, boyfriend. Oh, Whatever. And so here's the crazy thing. The boyfriend, I, I can't believe he didn't start beating the crap out of this guy. The guy gets up, he's all shaken, and he, and he quickly gets up. Does, does the guy leave the theater? No. He, he goes, comes and sits next to you. Goes, no. Oh, he better not have. He would have been in trouble. No, no. He gets up and he like moves like way down and like to the left by himself. But that's the weird thing for the rest of the movie. The guy's still in the theater. Now, I, I was able to concentrate. Well, you paid. I mean, you paid for the movie. <laughs> I, I was able to watch the rest of the film, but I just couldn't believe the whole scene that unfolded in front of me. And I'm like, well, you know what? If you go to the movies long enough in New York City, you are going to experience some stuff. And I had never had anything like that ever happen before or thankfully since. And I mean, this was like, this is not like a, I mean, it's blow up. I mean, it's blow up. there's some scantily clad, you know, scenes. That's right. But I mean, that is just weird, weird material to be going to a theater doing that. It was strange. Yeah. Well, you know what? It was, well, in a weird, in a weird tie in when the movie was over, I got a look at the guy. It was Ethan Hawke. <laughs> <laughs> I just <laughs> No, sorry, Ethan. It was not you. No. I'm going to hear from his lawyer soon. <laughs> no. um, okay, so there. Well, I've told the story. So, I mean, I got to ask, did he, like, as soon as the light's up, did he, like, boom, run no, for I it? Did he stay, did he stay I, through honestly, the credits? I don't know if I did. I wanted to get out of there. I don't, and like, the movie actually, doesn't it just end at the end? Like, the, like he kind of disappears yeah, that's where, that's from the screen. Yeah, that's when the mines show up. Yeah. And he kind of, like, And he know, disappears, well, yeah, but yeah, I don't yeah, think yeah. there's a large credit sequence. So No. 
No. But no. I mean, so that's the story for whatever reason you felt <laughs> you wanted to, you wanted I to hear that. that. I remember that because I had a, a very similar experience. Were you the guy this time? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, Jimmy, no. Okay. Um, a couple of years after that, I went to go see, there was a revival theater that opened up on East 23rd Street. And I'm going to say this is like late 92, 90, I'm going to say or 93, this is around. And um, so I went to go see it with uh, with my my now wife. And uh, we went to go see, there was, there, were, there was a showing of Dr. Zhivago. <laughs> never seen Dr. Shivago on the big screen. It was something that I was actually really very excited to to experience because, you know, it's just one of those things. Like you've talked about seeing Lawrence. I really wanted to see Dr. Shivago on the big screen. So we go to see it. And this theater, um, I forget even what it's called. They opened it up as a revival theater on 23rd Street. And it was a dump. It was an absolute oh. dump of a theater, and the print was like St. Mark's 80 bad. Oh, I mean, it was, what a it shame. was, the color was all faded. It was, you know, that kind of pink, like, you know, those televisions from the 60s and 70s when you would turn the tint all the way to. Yeah, well, it was, vine- well, it had vinegar syndrome. Yeah. Right. So I mean, the just, print it was, had been out for a while. It, like, it probably was made in the 70s. And the 70s prints um, didn't last very long. They weren't stable. So then they quickly turned to vinegar and then uh, turned purple. So. so it was just, it was terrible. Which, I by mean, the way, a little segue, a year before, I was out in L.A. And the now closed, by the way, L.A. County Theater, the Bing Theater, had just opened up. And as part of that, they did this whole two weeks of like widescreen 70 millimeter film festival to show off all their capabilities. And they showed a pristine 70 millimeter print of Dr. Shabago and I was floored. Yeah, I've, I've never still, I mean, so basically all of the snow was like purple snow. Yeah, no, I know like, exactly you know, it was what like, It was like outside of like Prince's house, you know? It's hard to watch because sometimes you'll see an immaculate print that's gone vinegar and it's like, there's not a scratch on it and yet the whole thing is colored purple. It's weird. It just was, you know, really kind of terrible. But here's the one thing. So we're watching... The, we're, we come up to the part in the, the film where Zhivago and his family are heading east. They're heading to their estate, their summer estate yeah. on the train, you know, and they're on the train and Klaus Kinski is oh, there. I love that. I love that scene. Yeah. Yeah. So it's that whole sequence where they're headed out on the train. And all of a sudden we become aware that one of the things that keeps happening throughout the sequence, they keep cutting to the train engine puffing and chuffing and moving along and <laughs> on the back, I'm going to put that in the background while you're talking about so while we're watching this all of a sudden it becomes obvious that this very heavy sweaty dude a couple of like a couple of rows down is yanking his crank to this okay that he you went over to inspect no no it was just i mean dude it was so theatrical it was like you know i mean it was like he was like a mime doing it and uh he was making noise like train noises while he was doing bill but bill i have a question yes have you ever been in a turkish prison (laughs) sorry are you a priest you're gonna ask me about uh, meryl street movies (laughs) (laughs) i need to see you in the rectory (sighs) forthwith young william so, so 
So this guy is going like, and, and he just becomes more intense every time they cut to the, the end, you know, the, the shots of the train wheels kind of going. So this is, you know, I, I, I just was absolutely floored by this, that this is what was getting the guy hot was the train. That is weird. Did your wife stuff. notice this was happening? She did. And like, we both were laughing because it was hilarious. I mean, it wasn't even like it actually, cause we couldn't even see him. He had his hands down his pants. Well, I hope you couldn't see. No, and he was also a couple of rows forward, but yes. at the same time, but it was just enough that you could like you could tell what he was doing. And the thing that was the capper, so to speak, is there's a moment in the sequence you probably remember where they open up the cattle car door and they smash the ice. And they smash the ice. That is the moment where the gentleman <laughs> climbs. Okay, thank you. <laughs> And suddenly the only, only shred of white to grace the screen that day from the purple. Oh, Jimmy. Oh, that's oh, terrible. Okay. That's terrible. Yeah, okay. So did this guy leave? Did he get no, kicked No, 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 no. He stayed the entire time. Nobody, like, and it was just one of those things where it's like it was happening. And for us, it was like hysterical. We were dying laughing. But I, for me now, the movie has been ruined, I suppose. In the yeah, well, it's going to be hard to shake. Yes. <laughs> that's what she said. <laughs> oh, there goes the kid audience. We have such a big but, following of youngsters <laughs> on the program. So, yeah, so I, I could never watch them, but, you know, but it was also one of those things that it's just like, what are we going to do? Are we going to go get the manager or something? Be like, hey, this guy is, this guy is comically masturbating. <laughs> you know what it is? You were, you were sparing the poor sucker who like worked at the theater from having to go down there and, and deal with it. Yeah, chase the guy out. You got a few extra dollars worth out of your movie. And you know, you needed some extra entertainment because you had to deal with the vinegar syndrome. That's what I always associate Dr. Shivago with is that experience. Um, enough stories. I think we're going to move on to our main topic, which it's, it's very, it's kind of a great tie-in. And I think this is why you wanted to uh, tell these stories. Yes. Okay. So in all of the uh, movies that I see and you see and, and Teal sees, right? You know, there's always going to be some nugget, some film out there that I haven't seen, that, I, that you just expect that I would have seen, that I expect that I would have seen. And that right. it's almost one of those things where if it comes up in conversation, I might as well just say I've seen it, even if I hadn't, because I feel like almost like, how could I have not seen this movie? That was kind of like me in the Meryl Streep episode. Yeah, right. The entire episode, right. How could you not have seen any of those films? Well, but still, I was able to cast judgment. So there yes, you go. Yes, yes. Um, that was a fun episode. I, I, if you haven't heard that, because you're like, I don't really feel like listening to a whole thing on Meryl Streep. I, I recommend it because I, I think it was pretty hilarious. I thought it was funny anyway. It was good. Um, sometimes the dullest subject matter is the funniest episodes. And there's one film, kind of a cult movie. Um, notorious for many, many reasons. I've wanted to see it for years. And you know what? It probably, right? If I went back and I looked at the movie pages from when, when I was in college, there's probably many opportunities to have gone to a midnight show of this. I know that they used to show this guy's films at midnight in, when I was at NYU at different theaters. But, but a different one. It was Faster Pussycat Kill. They Kill. always used to show Faster Pussycat, right. Um, and I know people that would go to that. Uh, so we're talking about Russ Meyer here, the notorious director. It's kind of very soft, soft, very soft core porn movies, right? I mean, they're right. really like tame. That I think anyway, you know, I mean, I, I think what I experienced at Blow Up <laughs> was what's more graphic than anything in his movies. But he always made these films under budget. And then 
they made a lot of money. And so studios were definitely interested in working with him. Times were changing. The rating systems came in. X had not yet gone to triple X. So mm-hmm. a movie that was rated X wasn't necessarily going to scare anybody. If anything, it was like it could win an Oscar <laughs> because uh, Midnight Cowboy won an Oscar and it was very tame and it was rated X. But basically, if you dealt with any subject matter like homosexuality, oh, for forbid, <laughs> shame, <laughs> then you had to get a rated X. You know, if you saw two men kissing, or, uh, you know, uh, simulated uh, sex of any kind. Forget it. So they got into business. 20th Century Fox, they were really hurting. They had made uh, Hello, Dolly, and it was a huge, expensive flop. And they had a whole bunch of other musicals that flopped. It was kind of one of those things where studios will crank out the same thing over and over again until it stops making money. The problem is they've usually spent all the money by the time they realize it's not making money anymore. Right. Um, so, I mean, I think at like 20th Century Fox, they might have also been the ones that did the Julie Andrews flop, Darling Lily. and Oh, Jesus. Yeah, that was a disaster. It was also, uh, you know, somebody had the great idea of doing a musical version of Goodbye, Mr. Chips with Peter O'Toole. Oh, I seen yes yes then 20th yes, century yes. fox had also had the huge huge monster flop dr doolittle um so i mean just they were just throwing they were just bleeding and cleopatra cash. yes and yeah. cleopatra from the early part of the the 60s so like it was it was just a decade that just almost brought the entire studio down uh, as a matter of fact they didn't really recover at all the only thing that saved them was star wars which their board of directors wanted to uh fire everybody and their brother over uh <laughs> Because this is these are people who just didn't get it. So they got they decided that maybe what the kids want today is a little bit more lurid sex and uh Absolutely. They, they had one film that did well, even though the, the critics scoured it, which was Valley of the Dolls. And they were looking to do an update. Um, I don't think that they could get the rights to a straight out sequel from Jacqueline Suzanne. I I think that they had somehow entered into a contract with her. I I read a little bit about it. And, you know, what happened was they were able to use the title. Right. You know, and she ultimately ended up suing them years later. And she won a couple of million dollars, is my understanding. She, well, probably only because if it hadn't made any money, she wouldn't have cared. But uh, <laughs> but they had to do all these things to say this is not a direct sequel. And uh, But they, they brought in Russ Meyer. Now, this guy, this is his one opportunity to make a huge, big budget film. Well, big budget for him, right? So he has all the tools at his disposal to do a Russ Meyer movie, but like the Hollywood in the, way. In the Russ Meyer toolkit. And the only reason I probably would have even remembered this movie at all, uh, had never, having never seen it, was that the whole notorious aspect that somehow film critic Roger Ebert was friends with Russ Meyer and he co-wrote the movie with yes. Russ Meyer. Um, yes. And then, of course, over the years, then he becomes famous as a critic with his own show and Siskel and uh, several times throughout the career, anytime that Siskel could take a dig into Ebert for something, he made sure to bring up Beyond the Valley of the Dolls Yes, to destroy Ebert's credibility. Now, I knew that over the years, the movie had become somewhat of a cult favorite or like a camp classic. Uh, I never got to see the movie. And it's just not something that plays on regular TV or regular cable uh, movie stations. So I just never saw the film. And the Criterion Collection 
they have it as a double bill with Valley of the Dolls, but I wasn't like that intrigued that I was going to go buy the the Blu-ray so that I could watch right. it. However, lo and behold, not too long ago, Hulu, I see an ad for Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, and I'm like, oh, you know what? I gotta take the I gotta take the Nesty plunge and and uh, watch this thing. And I gotta tell you, this is the movie that I feel like I can't believe I've missed all my life. I. <laughs> Loved every last second of this movie because I feel like it was so way ahead of its time. It is uh, camp for sure. Absolutely. Uh, but there's a, and it's funny because I then, you were looking to come on and, and then we were going to tell this story about the blow up. And I'm like, well, all right, well, here's a movie that I want you to watch. And you were gracious enough to get uh, a quick uh, little subscription to Hulu so that I, you I could signed watch up. this. Yep. I signed up. Because by the end of this movie, I watch it in a few parts, right? But like the second half of this movie, I couldn't, I couldn't stop watching. It was so amazing <laughs> just because I quickly realized, seeing it 50 years from the time it's release, that this thing clearly was a satire. Oh, my God. Absolutely. And it's- So it's a satire, but clearly you have a guy- uh, this guy Russ Meyer, who has his own predilections and his yes. own his own things that he really actually likes. Mm-hmm. For him, I have a feeling what he was putting on the screen was he. I think he got that he was trying to make a satire of like what he thinks were straight movies kind of thing. Right. You know, people who played it by the book, and I'm going to just do it with my style. However, and this is the interesting thing about Camp, which you've actually you you pointed me. In the direction of Susan Sontag's notes yep. on camp from 1964, yes. and I, yes. I did take a perusal <laughs> at her notes. Um, but you know, she makes this very interesting distinction between I call it high and low camp. But like, yep. there's intentional camp and unintentional camp. Naive camp is what what she calls yeah the the, the camp that's done sort of serious minded camp. And, and so basically, so you define yeah the difference between the two. There's two movies at 20th Century Fox produced at the same time. One, one, one was a hit of sorts, which is Beyond the Valley of Dolls. It actually made a lot of money at the time. And then there was another one that was a notorious bomb. And I, I, I wanted for years, it was actually because of you, Bill. I wanted to watch this thing for years. And it finally got my chance. It was on like Turner Classic Movies a couple of years ago. And it's so bad. I couldn't watch it. I could watch 15 minutes of it. And I couldn't handle it. And that's uh, Myra Breckenridge. Oh, Jesus Christ. And you remember, there's a great article about it uh, yes. that was written. So the thing is that Myra Breckenridge's intentional camp, it yes. was designed to be campy. And I feel like sometimes when you try so hard to be campy and let's do all this camp, it doesn't work. Right. It's not as campy as you'd hoped it would be. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, naive camp, you know, the kind of examples they always give is the idea that they're taking themselves really seriously. So like fade down away in mommy dearest. Right, that's, that is classic. That became real camp because it's when the audience gets it and a certain audience. And sometimes, I mean, Sontag actually points it out in her thing, but like a lot of times gay audiences will pick up on the camp before a straight audience. Well, well that's, see, that's part of the thing is that it really is. I, I suppose you could say it, it is very much tied to gay subculture and kind of giving an F you to kind of the, the normies, yeah. you know, and it kind of has itself both ways. It's intentional and naive camp because I okay, think go you ahead. Had, explain that. Explain well, that. I think this is where the genius is, is that you take Russ Meyer, right? Who people found his aesthetic very campy in the first place. But mm-hmm. then you take Roger Ebert, who was a serious film critic who eventually became a Pulitzer Prize winning film critic. Yeah, about five years later. He was 
hell bent on making a satire of Hollywood movies. Yes. And the studios that produced the movie like Valley and the Dolls, which he hated in the first place. <laughs> and so he just worked in tangent with Meyer and rewrote a lot of his stuff and turned it into something that he thought was satire. But in the hands of Russ Meyer, it becomes this super way over the top campy experience. However, right. the, the direction style of Meyer is so that he takes it seriously. When he directs the actors, he makes them go through the paces as if they believe everything that's happening on screen. And there comes this genius of camp because the stuff that these people are doing on screen is so hilarious. <laughs> and you even have the most flamboyant, insane character of all well, time. Well, the, the guy John Lazar. Yeah, Z-Man. Ronnie Z-Man Barzell. Yeah. <laughs> who they, they modeled after Phil Spector, who neither had ever met. But that kind of crazy sort of Svengali right, type record right. producer. But he's so outrageous. And I'm watching this thing. And with only in the first, like, I don't know, 10 minutes, the, the girls who are in this band called, uh, well, first, first, they are in a, a band called, um, what is it? The Kelly Affair. Okay, yeah. and it's uh, three. It's three young band girls: Kelly McNamara, Casey Anderson, and of course, this is and this is why I think this movie was way better than a lot of films that came afterwards. They actually gave an entire character to somebody who was of color, and that did, and that's his character, Petronella Danforth, who they call Pat. Now, I think, by the way, I think either two or all three of them were all Playboy Playmates, just to give you a sense of the casting. Yes. And they didn't yes, have like and, big A-list careers after this, for sure. And and Kelly, I, I think, was actually English and her accent comes across a couple of times. But go ahead, yes. Well, but, but you know what? But here's the thing, right? It also works. It does exactly what Russ Meyer is intending because I'm a male, I'm watching it, and all of the actresses in this movie definitely have an appeal and an allure to them, right? Right? It works on it. So eventually they they go to this party from this big like record mogul guy, Z-Man. And it's mm-hmm. this insane, out of control, over the top, like 60s movie, like super Hollywood party experience. And, and they're traveling there. The, the thing that I love is also just to break in. They're traveling there. You know, they're coming from the Midwest and they come out and there's this really kind of like goofy kind of travel montage of them move, going across the country. And the guy who's with them is their manager who really looks like Greg Brady. Harrison Page <laughs> by Emerson Thorne. This guy is such a square. They're squares, but they also smoke some grass. Yes. <laughs> but this party, right? So this party is outrageous and it features an in-house band, the Strawberry Alarm Clock. Strawberry alarm clock, yes. So when I'm watching this, I'm getting this, this is a very familiar movie moment. And then it goes into this room with a spinning bed and the Z-Man's having his way with some, you know, starlet or something. And he says, this is my scene and it's freaking me out. And I'm like, oh my God, this whole thing is Austin Powers. And then I remembered that Mike Myers was obsessed with Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. And so in Austin Powers, The Spy Who Shagged Me, they're having a huge shindig that's set up exactly like this. And over the soundtrack, they're playing the Strawberry Alarm Clock. And then he says, this is my scene and it's freaking me out. Uh, And so now I'm like, whoa, this movie has influenced a lot of people afterwards. And I have been in. You said John Waters also. Well, yeah. So John Waters, he's on record as this was the kind of film that was a hoot for him and his friends to go see. They loved it. They got everything. But even more importantly, everything about what 
Myers was doing in this movie was what John Waters wanted to do. And then he basically was like, well, how do I take my own spin? And you definitely see the influence in pretty much everything that he did, but like from like multiple maniacs to female trouble to pink flamingos. And that's sort of the thing with, you know, using divine. A lot of people have have pointed out the fact that uh, Myers taste in women. They're kind of hyper sexual. They're almost kind of like fertility dolls in a way that there's a kind of that that they almost kind of cross over into being um transvestites you know or they have that aesthetic that that's going on so that's you you can sort of you can see that in um in this because the the woman who plays the um porn star in it i forget her name uh Edie Williams who li- ended up uh, marrying Russ Meyer later on after yeah, this she plays Ashley St. Ives <laughs> Ashley St. Ives <laughs> You know, just the names are perfect. I don't want to give away everything in this movie because there's so many delights, but there's so much debauchery and there's like partner swapping and there's crazy, weird looking people that I guess are the American version of characters that would be in a Fellini movie. Prostitute in Eight and a Half and Amar Cord, uh, La Saragini or, you know, um, that's who like a lot of them almost look like. But go ahead. Yeah, there are a couple of other characters. Well, I mean, there's just so many. There's there's um, John Lazar, like Ronnie Z man barzell he has a manservant who's basically a nazi dressed up in a nazi uniform yes there's that weird old guy and lady that are just hanging out in there the the, i heard yeah something princess or something i forget and then i mean the story gets so complex there's just so much going on as these uh women band members the kelly affair become the carry nations that's Why? I don't know. But that they become the Carry Nations and then their their band manager, Harrison, who had a thing going with the lead, Kelly, he's kind of this guy. He's kind of like has confused sexuality. He gets involved in drugs. He feels like his manhood's in question. Uh, There's all sorts of things going on there. Meanwhile, tied in because... He had the Hollywood budget. They actually had a Hollywood cinematographer, Fred J. Camp, shoot the movie, and the movie looks amazing. It does, right? It does. And well, but 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 at the same time, used to this like incredible campy effect of people running through fields in slow motion. It's and, so uh, insane. All these ideas they put in this movie. It's like you shouldn't have this in a Hollywood movie. It breaks all these rules. But then you have these amazing, amazing, like Greg Toland like setups. The the thing that is amazing is where they go on the TV show and at the same time, their former manager, Harrison Page, is so despondent. He climbs up to the rafters and and like the shot selection and angles are so amazing. And then he jumps off. (laughs) He jumps from the stage and lands on the stage. And instead of dying, he becomes paralyzed. And that becomes his whole melodrama with him in a wheelchair. You see, but all the melodramatic stuff also with um, the aunt and then and the financial advisor who's trying to steal the aunt's money with with Yeah, with him. And then also with um, with the African-American couple. And then she ends up having an affair with With the the boxer champion. (laughs) (laughs) That whole scene's insane. Like, I love that it goes off in these little tangents and segues. But that's where that's where he really is taking Valley of the Dolls and just like ramps it up. You know, into uh, you know absurdity, and um, I I actually think Ebert did uh, fantastic work 
writing this. I mean, it's the the end of this movie when it turns just so psycho crazy. Well, okay. Can I (laughs) just say the thing is, I I told you, I think that this would be a great double bill with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It would. And for many reasons, I don't want to spoil it for other people. But then when the guy who's a paraplegic, this guy, the foreign major, when he is trying to help and he gets out of the car, crawls, and then suddenly you can start feeling his legs, like the power, the power of heroism. The power of narrative compels you. And then there's this ending where it decides to wrap it all up with this awesome voiceover narration. Insanely good. I mean, the, the narration at the end is worth, you know, that like leaves you on an absolute high. You're just like, oh, this movie kicks ass. Like I, after seeing this, I was, I was so filled with regret that this wasn't something that I've had as a theatrical experience in my life and I now need to this needs to happen like I need to see this with a packed audience can I tell you something that I realized about you watching this oh about me yeah no 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 it's it's uh (laughs) what I realized about you and watching this was a couple of weeks ago ding 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 couple of weeks ago the van pulled up and dropped my film print off when you when you very graciously had me on the show it keeps saying a couple that. of weeks ago i know <laughs> very graciously had me on the show that i you were you were going on about alan parker because i and i i was a little bit i i was kind of running alan parker a little bit down i kind of i pulled back on a little bit because i could you know i i didn't want to be a dark dark cynical bill well no but he, he had a but he has a mixed bag career he not does, everyone's a gem and then he ended on a down note and then he retired for 17 years, so I get it. Yeah, no, but I mean, but the thing that I realized what what gave you a very personal connection to him in some ways is was fame, and you were talking about fame because I was very like meh about fame, but I think one of the moments in fame is when they go to Rocky Horror. Well, yes, and yes, that's, I, and I that is a huge thing for you. I realize yeah. it was that the whole idea of going to see Rocky Horror and Rocky Horror is an example of a film that came out around this time that was purposeful camp that didn't get at first the audience that it ultimately did when people were like, "Oh, I get it." Now there's high camp. It's definitely purposeful camp, but it's. It's not you do. They don't tell people like, oh, here, here's a camp film for you. Mainstream audiences, they're not ready for camp. It can't be accepted that way. So, mm-hmm. you know, and again, it's something where people have to be piped in. So, like, not everybody and their brother goes to see the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Right. I got I to gotta be honest. I like when I was in high school, wasn't my cup of tea. Yeah, you were a jock. <laughs> You you were a jock, Bill. That's why it's amazing that we became. You were like you were like the film. You were like a film guy jock. You were like you you took the the two two tastes that don't taste great together, and somehow you you mixed them together. It's weird yeah, that you were art guy and jock. Yeah, I know. I you were know. a wrestler, right? I was captain of the wrestling team, captain See? of the football team. Yes. yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So all yeah. that stuff. So, but, you know, so. I mean, no, but I mean, but, you know, so that's, yeah, you were, you know, like, hey, guys, after this wrestling match, let's go go see Rocky Horror. They're going to look at you like, what? Well, I will, tell, I will tell you actually something that did happen after football practice one day. The videos, like, not the good video store, but the bad video store. Um, you know, there's always the kind of, like, slightly down market kind of shady yeah, I worked video at store. Yeah, I worked at the good one and the down market one in high school yes yeah they so the one that was down market had pink flamingos 
Oh, yes. Yes, yes. The down market one did. After football practice, a couple of my friends who were, you know, guys who were, you know, I thought would be, you know, they they were open-minded guys. I was like, hey, this is supposed to be really nuts. Let's check it out. And we were watching it. And this one friend of mine, it got to the point where, I don't know if you remember, there's a moment in Pink Flamingos where this guy is... Um, anus is yeah, singing I, the yeah, surfing yeah, bird. Yeah, I, you know that. You know I the know scene. The, I know okay. the movie. You don't have to describe it. Yeah. <laughs> so my one friend, you actually met him. Gets up, leaves the oh, house. Right. Just gets up yeah. He's just like. He's like. He's like. They're. They're playing my autobiography. <laughs> I can't believe this. I don't want anybody else to know. I'm out of here. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> So anyway, but I, but so I, that's the one thing though, I realized, I think watching this and your reaction to it is the fact that I think you always loved purposeful camp. I think I do. Or just camp in, or camp in general. Like I haven't seen, and I really, I want to see Gotti with Travolta. Oh, that was the worst. Have you seen that? That's <laughs> no, one of the worst. I, I saw the first like five minutes of it and I was like, I really need to dedicate time but to you know watch what though? this. Oh, hey, wait, you know what would be good? Do you remember how uh, Teal and I did a watch party with uh we're red dawn we're red dawn I if we ever it, had yeah. the time is, is gaudy on netflix we should i think it is that would be a good one to do a watch party <laughs> you and me because it would just be hilarious because it's so bad because i would love to do that we've got to do that okay All right, fine so fine. anyways there's probably so much this is the this is the killer about a show like this is that we really should just do one topic and talk about it for an hour but instead it's like we want to cram multiple things into it so uh we're going to continue and we're sadly going to go away from uh beyond the valley of the dolls because just just for the, the listeners it's been great this summer of bill i call it it's been fun having these episodes i feel like you are now part of the show and that you'll continue to be a part of the show however you know you are a teacher and school season is ramping up and you probably won't be as available as you have been so i'm not sure when the next time you're going to be on the program which is why we'll want to try to get through the next thing thank you well can i before before we oh, do that oh. can i just oh you see i can oh. just one more thing i want to get here close it out the idea of the ethics of somebody who's a film critic writing a movie and i'm just curious well he thoughts, wasn't right? able to, he, he didn't oh i mean i, thought he was I see gay. i see what you're saying well that's not true is that like what uh was it jay cossacks he was Co- a, yeah, jay cox yeah. yeah and then um the guy that did um well up here bogdanovich he did but Bogdanovich always said he wasn't a critic. He always right. said he was but, but more But those people all had to quit. They kind of quit. Kale quit at a certain point and, you know, went to work for Warren Beatty. She was going to write a movie for James Toback. Yeah. So, I mean, but then, but Ebert didn't, but I think he also kind of quit Hollywood. I mean, he did this for only his friend, Russ Meyer, and then he really focused on criticism. And he never, and he didn't review. So in 1980, like 10 years afterwards, he wrote a sort of retrospective his thoughts about Beyond the Valley of the Doll and mm-hmm. and talked about how it's not really ethical or he really can't, you know, it's hard to critique something that you wrote. Like, you can't do that. Right. A couple of things that I think revealed about this, because I also know you're huge, like Ebert and Siskel were a huge influence on you. They were a huge influence on me. I think, you know, you, you and Teal spoke about this many times about how that show really um, provoked conversation around movies at the time when we were growing up. In between football passes, you're like, oh, guys, we're going to go in and catch PBS. They're showing uh, Soskal Niebert. At the movies. I'll be right, right back. <laughs> Tag me back in. But um, the thing that I always thought about, first of all, I, the fact that Gene didn't get this just reveals, again, how I think 
you know, a lot of film critics, a lot of guys who come become film critics, they're guys who they would have been restaurant critics or somebody else. It's just like, hey, you, you're free this week. You're now the movie critic. And that's the thing that Ebert in, I sent you a clip of them fighting, which you've seen before. And Ebert makes the point. He's like, oh, here's another thing for Gene to learn on the job. Like how to do this. Well, like, did you see, have you seen the one where like they're talking about um, ordering at McDonald's? And, 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 and basically Siskel's only line of, of attack is Ebert's wait. Wait. Right? Yes. But Ebert yes. knows that that's his only line of attack and he just completely brutalizes Siskel's inability to tell a joke kind of thing. I know. It's and he's so just great. like, yeah. Hmm. Well, that's an interesting way to phrase something, Gene. For, you know, it's Ebert always, always really knew how to get the best of Gene, but Gene had, I think he had the, like, the sort of meaner edge to him in yes. his comments. Well, I think because, he he because he was coming from a weaker place. Yeah. You know, and, and that's what you have to do to leverage it. But I mean, the thing that I, I got to say that actually always bothered me a little bit about the show was once they had Touchstone. Well, yes. Their, once Touchstone was funding that they weren't on PBS. And there seemed to be a time, and I almost wonder, I, I, I almost want to set you off on like a little intellectual errand if this like works for you. <laughs> there, was a, there, was, there, was, there was a time where, because I, I would kind of put this down, where it seemed to be. The thumbs up was a big deal. It was worth millions and millions of dollars, if you think about it. I mean, it really yeah, well, was yeah, an it was, asset. It became a trademark. Yeah, yeah. And and so the thing is, there were certain Disney movies around that time when they were on, I don't know, Touchstone or Buena Vista Television. I forget who produced it. Yeah, yeah. You're saying, I know what you're saying. You're there saying were, that where they were- One of them, one of them, it was a movie. And I'll never forget, there was a movie, Mr. Destiny, with Jim Belushi and Michael Caine. And one gave a thumbs up and one gave the thumbs And it was almost like, you know, it was like, okay, who's going to like, who's going to take the dive this week? Yeah, no, you know what they did was <laughs> they, they, you, in their reviews, they would do this thing, which was contradictory to their whole approach where they would say, well, when it comes to sort of like a family entertainment, you kind of have to give it a different lens. Yes. And I think they, I think they did that with a lot of Disney I, stuff. I, I, yeah. I don't know if I have to go too far down the rabbit hole. I, I watched so much of that show that I know exactly what you're talking about. And I think that they did try to toe the company line a little bit as much as they could while still maintaining their integrity. Some integrity. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. But that's, but you gotta, that's a very fine line to walk. I don't, you know, get, I, I'm the one that has to edit these shows and it takes a long <laughs> time all right i got it i've actually we've been stockpiling episodes i don't know when this will air in the whole grand scheme of things but it does take a lot to edit uh so i want that was no it was it wasn't so what else am i not expecting on our last on our last portion of the show I don't know. We'll have to. I, I think there's going to have to be. Um, maybe I'm going to. I'm going to make some requests for uh, impersonations. Oh, okay. So let me see if you want. You you have an impersonation you want me to do. You're saying. Well, no, I, I do. I mean, there's well, there's one that uh, you know because I, I think that this might tie into the thing you wanted to discuss at the end. But I mean, so let me get. I'm gonna I'm gonna make a guess. Okay. 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 So let's see. Is it? I have a few. I have a few things that I like that you do. That always, okay. I love your Andy Robinson. Okay. Yes. Yes. We I love your Ted Knight. Yes, yes. Okay, uh, I know what it is. It's got to be okay. Jack Klugman, Quincy Emmy. Sam, Sam, it was murder. She had a lethal dose of phenobarbital in his system, Sam. No? No. Okay, was it, uh, was it, uh, was it John Marley, uh, Jack Waltz? You don't understand. Johnny Fontaine never gets that movie. That part is perfect for him. It'll make him a big star. I'm going to run him out of the movies. And let me tell you why. 
Johnny Fontaine ruined one of Waltz International's most valuable protégés. For three years, we had her under contract. Singing lessons, dancing lessons, acting lessons. I spent hundreds of thousands of dollars. I was going to make her a big star. Let me be even more frank. As if you didn't know he was talking about Frank Sinatra. Just to show you that I'm not a hard-hearted man, that it's not all dollars and cents, she was beautiful. She was young. She was innocent. She was the greatest piece of ass I've had. And I've had him all over the world. And then Johnny Fontaine comes along with his olive oil voice and his giddy charm, and she runs off. She threw it all away just to make me look ridiculous. And a man in my position can't afford to be made to look ridiculous. Now you get the hell out of here. And if that goomba tries any rough stuff, you tell him I ain't no band leader. Yeah, I heard that story. That wasn't that wasn't the imitation. No, that wasn't. <laughs> oh, okay. All I do is flip the switch. <laughs> what was the? Uh, what's the imitation? Come on. You see, you see okay. So, uh, the imitation is Kevin Costner in JFK. Oh, <laughs> see, you should have told me in advance. I could have really. I used to do. Liz, <laughs> Jasper. <laughs> Liz, what kind of a country are we going to have for Jasper here? <laughs> we through the looking glass here, people. It was a coup d'etat. How many keys did you bag, Dave? Well, uh, the boys well, told me you ain't get any. Well, I, I think I misremembered, Mr. Garrison. Back and to the left. Back and to the left. You used to do this, Back like, on subways. and to the left. <laughs> walking down the street. <laughs> Brushing your teeth in the morning. That movie had just come out when we were living together. So, I mean, we're still fresh. But that one, I, as a matter of fact, later that year, when I had moved to L.A. after college, for Halloween, we went down to Hollywood, um, some friends of mine. And it was like, it's a huge scene down there. And I dressed up as Kevin Costner for that movie. I had like a little pipe and stuff. I had a JFK conspiracy book tucked under my arm. I grayed up my hair. I had these like little glasses with dark rims. Yeah, but you used to do you used to do like his closing argument, and I didn't want to tell you before because I just wanted to see like your reaction to it and see if you could switch it on. But you haven't thought about it in a long time. I would have. I mean, like you know, it's funny. I not too long ago. I'm, I'm talking a couple of years. I watched the director's cut mm-hmm. of that movie. There's another example where I know they put out these director's cuts to make a few extra bucks, but that's a film where less turns out to be more. Because when you add those scenes, the scenes are really, like, they're not well-directed. No, and and you can kind of see the seams a little bit more. Part of the thing that really works so well about JFK is that it's moving constantly. You know, I don't know what the hell he was on when he was making it. Yeah, I know a few things about Oliver Stone. We're going to say, we'll leave it at that. I I heard an interesting story once. Oh, you did, did you? (laughs) It wasn't for me, right? No, no, it wasn't from you. I, you know what? Let's let's not. Yeah, maybe maybe we'll have to do a blind item. Okay, show. A blind, <laughs> blind item show that everybody knows came from us. But um, so okay, so I, I I'll kind of kick this. You do the imitations is that one thing, and I guess I guess in the back of my mind, I always thought of it as you and me, um, and maybe it's why I like these movies so much. But I'm a fan of the I call it the trip series mm-hmm. and it's these Michael Winterbottom they were it's originally a BBC show so they're actually right. much longer and broken into like six parts and of course it features Steve Coogan and 
Rob Bryden and Rob Bryden, uh, which you know they're 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 even more like well known to uh, British audiences than they are uh, here. But uh, they did this. They started off in the uh, like I don't know, like was it two thousand and eleven or fourteen or something I with forgot. the trip. It's essentially they pretend to be versions of themselves, and they're going on like a and they go to the Lake District. Yeah, yeah, they're they're going around eating at all these very like high end. Uh, kind of cool, out of the way restaurants, and the premises walking kind of in the the footsteps of the romantic poets. Yeah, yeah and then and then so the it's a great framing device to kind of do a, a less than two hour film, but but of course, or it's a series on TV, and it, each leg of their trip is broken up into like an episode. They're supposed to be like one of them supposed to be like writing like you know a review series for like an article for a paper or whatever, right? Right, and that's always so. That's always the premise. Every single one of these. The first one's in England. Second time it's in Italy. Third time it's in Spain. Fourth time it's in Greece. And and it's not really. There's little changes, I'd say, but it's mostly an excuse for Coogan and Bryden to sit down at a table riffing. And making fun of each other and kind of showing, mm. showcasing some of their, I guess, comedic abilities with impressions. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. When we've been doing these episodes, it kind of reminded the old, the old uh, Jimmy Billy magic where we were just constantly trying to goof on each other and see who can crack the other one up. And, you know, and throw out impressions and stuff. And I was like, wow, you know, it really felt a lot like those trip movies. And then the new trip to Greece. Just, but the food wasn't as good. Well, okay. <laughs> the food so, wait, so this is what's fu- this is what my idea is, right? Uh, the trip to Greece just came on Hulu, which I was like, oh, now you can have a two for a bill. You can watch the trip to Greece and Beyond the Valley of the Dolls and yes. get your money's worth. And I have never seen the full length episodes i've only seen the compilation movies that they've done Uh, right but i've now since watched all four i had started the trip to spain when it first launched on hulu like about a couple years ago whatever and i i never got back to it so after watching the trip to greece i went back and finished it um and again it's not really necessarily a review of these movies but i just love the concept um and again i think some people on just a film level will watch these and be like oh it's the same movie every time and they they, they're fine in that sense and i really enjoy them it's like comfort for me to you know It, it absolutely is i think actually there's something about these movies where they almost seem to be perfectly tailored to our media consumption these days in the sense that you don't even like every story is the same it really doesn't like who cares about like the fact that like oh steve coogan might date you know this person again or rob rob has another kid or rob's dude you know like the character development really almost doesn't matter yeah superfluous what's i mean it's basically why this works is that you could just watch the clips of it and you kind of get it because it works uh, for clips. It also almost works as a cooking show, which is a big sort of thing that people love to consume. So I think I always get hungry after watching one of these <laughs> movies. <laughs> I'm always I'm like, oh, God damn, that looks really good. But it's like it's just like it's fun to watch these friends. And if you watch them, like it's fun to see the evolution in their relationship. And just I mean, somewhat Coogan, his character, even though he's playing a version of himself, kind of evolves a little bit. And it always ends mm-hmm. the same way. It's always kind kind of a little bit downbeat and a little sad as Coogan goes off and you feel like this guy's really kind of his own, like he's, he's kind of a lonely man. 
Yeah, I mean, that's that's where Bryden has a family and kids and right, right, that that's, you know, that Coogan's more successful. He's more famous. He could call up, you know, Ben Stiller if he wanted to. But, you know, Rob has seems to have a fuller life. Yeah. And then, and you know, I thought the last movie that just came out, I think actually has, it's a little poignant, I thought, a little bit more yes. poignant than some of the other episodes. And, you know, again, at my own age, like as I get older and even having this show, right, being able to connect again with both you and Teal in ways that for years I didn't. Yes. It is fun. And it made me think, I'm like, oh, you know what? I mean, I think it's just such a great, fun concept. You know, everybody's doing a found footage movie, right? (laughs) This is, to me, a great concept. I would love, if I had the bag of cash, right, and the time, I'd love to do a film where you and I, right, we kind of go and do our own trip, and it's but it's like through a, a section of America. But of course, we're not going to good restaurants. We go to like diners and, and shitholes. And so when we go to the kitchen thing, it's probably like you know someone popping the fries in the microwave or something. You know, like I would kind of like take all the aesthetic moments of the one of the way that they shoot these movies, but yet it'll be that very America. It'll become like a we, commentary. We go get some deep fried butter somewhere. Yeah, I mean it's a commentary on how most Americans. Americans would travel the country, but then you and I, we'd be able to splint, we'd be hanging out and we would be able to splinter in uh, our fun impressions and uh, the things that we make fun of each other for. So, you know, like when those ladies asking if we want dessert, no, 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 no. I want to check you, rotten hunker. Which I would never say, of course. No, you're a gentleman. I would, yes, I would never say that. But you see, problem A, bag of money. Yeah, I mean, I don't even problem know we, B. Yeah, we don't have bag time. Money. Bag of money is probably a bigger problem, but yes. <laughs> and also think about the fact that like we couldn't do this now. We couldn't travel. Right. Well, I'm telling you, know, it'd be a future. We have time to get the bag of money because we have to wait it out, right, till the pandemic's over, so that we can uh, go out. Um, but believe me, I'm pretty sure if the bag of money hit us. I think we'd find a way to make the time to go for a week adventure. Oh, sure. Bag of money cures all all ills. I'd put the distribution of the film out of your hands because you've done that good job with your own movie that that no one can see the light of day with. (laughs) I'd make sure that people could watch this thing. Is this part of your ribbing, me, Jimmy? Yes, yes, the ribbing. (laughs) The ribbing, yes. Well, it's just because, like, you know, you should be proud of, like, I mean, that's something I always want to do is make a movie. I'm not jealous. I just would like to see the movie is all I'm saying. Yeah, I know. I know, whatever. you, t- you turn the page. What can I tell you? Yeah. But I mean, they do so many great impressions and, 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 and sometimes they do the same one in just different varieties in these movies, but then they add new ones. And so like. That's, you see, that's what's really fantastic. Like we, in in my, like all my kids have seen the trip movies. And, they have? And what, yes, they have. And we'll, we'll sometimes do impersonations to one another. You see, know, that's funny because they probably don't even know who they're impersonating. But, they, well, uh, but that's uh, like Parkinson, Parkinson, you know, saying like Michael Buble, you know, because <laughs> so whenever Michael Poob, you know, so where do you stand on Michael Buble? On his windpipe? <laughs> I loved when they, uh, I think it was, see, I'm getting more, like they, they were a mosh. I don't even know which movie they're from, but I think it was the Spain because that was what I was watching last night was where they, they were, they were doing amazing. And it's what's, what's so great is they each do a version of the character. Michael Caine and also Roger Moore. Yeah, that's what I'm doing. Roger Moore. <laughs> but each of them, it's not that one's better than the other. They're different, but they're a different facet of Roger Moore. And that's what makes it so great. <laughs> When I kill, I kill for queen and country. (laughs) Like, I actually think sometimes Coogan does the better impersonation, but Bryden does the better character of it. Yes. And so Coogan then tries to upstage him. and then th- but, but Coogan's whole premise is always like, no, I'm an actor. You're, you're, you're like Brian. a comedian. Yeah. 
I mean, but it's just, it's so funny. I mean, the way they make fun of Tom Hardy, which is, which is funny is that a few episodes Laurel and ago, Tom Hardy. Laurel and Tom Hardy. <laughs> and, and, you know, and I like the self-deprecating humor. I mean, Bryden is really like, you know, shits on Coogan's career. Um, Coogan shits on Bryden's lack of a career. <laughs> and then there's a running joke usually in the movie of either oh, Coogan or Bryden. Oh, my seven BAFTAs. Yeah, right. His seven <laughs> BAFTAs. And then Bryden or Coogan or sometimes both losing out roles to other people and not making it. Or in the trip to Spain. Coogan's agent has left the firm and didn't take Coogan along. <laughs> but then later in the film, he calls up Bryden and is like, yeah, I think that uh, we could do some stuff. And he's like, doesn't know that Coogan agent had left him. Uh, there's all these like little things, but it's funny because they're, they're critiquing their own careers. Yeah. I mean, but you see, that's, that's sort of the thing that's great is that they're, they're, they're making fun of themselves. They're very self-aware. It's, it's, I think it's, it's terrific. Would you, would you put yourself more as noted high school wrestler, Bill Muir, or noted film director? I think we're going to go with a film director. I, I, uh, I, I'm going to go with um, wrestler probably at this point. It's got a lot more to do with my identity at this point. Oh, there, until you're dead, there's always a chance to uh, change your identity. <laughs> well, I don't know. All right. protection. All right. So do we have any more? Is there any more imitations that I need to do before we're going to sign off here? Or we're no, good? no, I, I got I to gotta go clean those gutters, Jimmy. They're not going to clean themselves. Yeah, you live in, in, in Queens. There's no gutters that you have to clean out. Are you kidding? Oh, yeah. There are gutters. Are there? We have gutters in Queens. Know. Believe it or not, there are trees in Queens. And there, there, it <laughs> rains in Queens. I don't know if you know. When the rain falls on the house, it's not good. We've, we've exhausted the patience of our of our audience. Of our listener. Of our li- no, that was what your guy from around the corner, Joe. Yeah, Joe. <laughs> Joe. Is that's that's all, that's where I get my feedback from. All right. Well, I hope people have enjoyed this uh, cavalcade of entertainment. Uh, for more episodes of this type of entertainment, go to stuffweseen.com. Feedback at stuffweseen.com. Instagram is stuff we've seen podcast. And Bill can be found nowhere. He's got no social media presence. It's true. And that's the way he wants it. That's the way he wants it because he knows he'd be so popular. He'd have lots of demand for that movie. And he just can't handle all those requests. He'd be having to make his kids do a mail order business, get copies of his film. Yeah, yeah. Next thing you know, opening shopping centers makes my life a living hell. Yeah. So, you know. If you uh, if you have a, a movie you want pr- to produce and you need a guy to direct it, Bill Muir, noted film director, <laughs> is your man. Get in touch with me and I'll get you in touch with, <laughs> touch with him. All right, people. Well, this has been fun. Bill, I know we'll talk again. I know you'll be on the show at some point in the near future, maybe the far future. But uh, until then, you'll listen to the show. Oh, of course. I never miss one. And, uh, you know, people stay safe. Wear the mask whenever possible and, uh, you know, see some stuff if you can. I don't know. Now there's theaters opening. uh, So if you have the guts to do that, you can, you know, try that out. All right, people. Goodbye. Bill, you'll say anything? Goodbye. (laughs) Just like Bill. Hello. Say goodbye. (laughs) Here's a little cookie for you. (laughs) Good job. (laughs) 